Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. Okay, we're on part two of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Let's get now into the actual novel itself. And actually, let's talk about the various pieces of it. So, let's go over to page... Let's go into the beginning. Let's see some of the things that Philip K. Dick is talking about. This is page 6. So it's right in the beginning, chapter 1. Okay? I program an automatic resetting for three hours later, his wife said sleekly. A 481. Now remember, um, Rick Deckard is talking with his wife and they're they're being introduced as characters and they're talking about uh, you know their lives and there's a a device that they can dial that sets a certain mood in their brain a certain electrochemical <coughs> adjustment I program an automatic resetting for three hours later and that's because she was programming a depression because she wanted to have a feeling of a depression when it you can dial it in. It automatically resets a few hours later. A 481. Awareness of the manifold possibilities open to me in the future. New hope that... I know a 481, Rick Deckard interrupted. He had dialed out the combination many times. He relied on it greatly. Listen, he said, seating himself on his bed, taking hold of her hands to draw her down beside him. Even with an automatic cutoff, it's dangerous to undergo a depression, any kind. Forget what you've scheduled, and I'll forget what I've scheduled. We'll dial a 104 together and both experience it. And then you stay in it while I reset mine for usual business-like attitude. That way, uh, uh, I'll want to hop off to the roof and check out the sheep, and then head for the office. Meanwhile, I'll know you're not sitting here brooding with no TV. He released her slim, long fingers, passed through the spacious apartment to the living room, which smelled faintly of last night's cigarettes, there he bent to turn on the TV. From the breakfast room, Iran's voice, his, his wife's name is Iran, Iran's voice came, I can't stand TV before breakfast. Well, dial 888, Rick said, as, he, as the set warmed, the desire to watch TV, no matter what's on it. <coughs> I thought this was a very interesting passage relating to stuff of today. What's going on here that relates to our society? This was a novel, of course, that was written, published in 1968. What's going on now that this was quite foretelling? You have to understand, you're living in a society that's much different than in 1968. So for you folks, this may not seem like science fiction, but in, in I mean, that particular paragraph, but in what there's you know but 1968 this was like crazy stuff to think that something what's going on now mind-altering drugs and stuff what kind of mind-altering drugs are we talking crack cocaine and heroin antidepressants like Zoloft (coughs) Prozac um, stuff like that prescriptions they're giving you now that can change your mood entirely yeah mood changers entirely mood changers well these days 
enormous numbers of kids, and not just, I'm not talking Emory, I'm talking Harvard, Stanford, Berkeley, Yale, Princeton, every place. Enormous numbers of kids are medicated, self mood medicated. I mean, enormous numbers of kids. And they trade their stuff. They actually know how to talk about these drugs as if, you know, how about this, try this for that, and they give self they give advice to others and when they go into the doctors they often don't say I'm feeling this way and wait for the doctor to give a prescription they say I'm feeling this way and this is the exact prescription that I want so they give the and they you know combine things if they're going to take a test they take Adderall if they, and then right after the test they take something else and then they, right, when they wake up in the morning they take something else but the, and the, but the kids have enormous numbers of drugs that they do it. And now there was a New York Times article about this not too long ago where they were talking about how common it is in the culture and that you're talking an enormous numbers of, uh, of, of kids that, are, that, that use um, drugs to adjust their personalities as they go on. If they're feeling a little bit this way, they add a little here. They're feeling a little bit that way. They add a little here. Fine tuning their stuff. This is really what th- this chapter, chapter one, has gone into a number of cases. I mean, this whole chapter is filled with examples like this: dialing this, dialing that, to make sure you're okay. You know, the number of kids who take Adderall right before a test is astounding. In order to help focus them. And then right, I and mean, that's exactly the same as what this guy said. Uh, we'll dial a, one, a 104 together, both experience, and then I will reset mine from my usual business-like attitude afterwards. <laughs> uh, I have a question. Yeah. Isn't it, taking Adderall kind of like taking steroids? Isn't it like giving, giving a student unfair advantage over other students? Like if someone got caught, would it, shouldn't it be like... Yeah, should they do drug should testing they get suspension before? for it? Because well, I mean for, well, the the question is, should they do drug testing before the SAT test <laughs> or something, or any test? I mean, because I mean, it's almost like taking steroids. It's getting an unfair advantage. I mean, we're making such a big deal about it in baseball and football and any other sport. It'd be hard to moderate though, because some people actually really do need it. You know. True. Exactly. But well, I mean, you still should have like a liable thing, like prescription from a doctor saying that you are. Yeah, they'd have to actually test the urine or the blood and then uh, see if the person is actually prescribed to take it or if they're just taking it because they got it from somebody else that was in the library. Yeah, people would never do that. I mean, even they did like a random Wait, 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 one at a time. Oh, no, he would say, he said that it would take a lot of effort to do that. Oh, I know. Because it takes too much effort, I don't think it'll ever happen. Yeah, you probably won't. But But but, you know, they did like a random drug test. I mean, it would reduce it significantly. Students would be afraid to take it. I mean, it is a problem. I mean, I know the government never invests in something like that, but... Well, actually, you might want to think about it in another way. Would the government really be opposed to people adjusting their moods? Probably not. How is is Philip K. Dick talking about this? Like it's a positive thing. As a positive thing, exactly right. Philip K. Dick is talking about the idea of sedating the population, adjusting their moods as a way of population control, controlling them from being objecting. Now, mind you, what is the... Does anyone remember what uh, what Buster Friendly is? Is the 
comic on TV. Yeah, actually, he's more than the comic on TV. To us, he seems comical. He's also the person that delivers the news. Buster <laughs> friendly. <laughs> you know, and... But, like, for example, he turned on the TV and the, and the voice of Buster Friendly boomed out and filled the room. This is from page 7. Ho, ho, folks, time now for a brief note on today's weather. The Mongoose Satellite reports that fallout will be especially pronounced toward noon and then will taper off. So all you folks who will be venturing out... And it goes on. Buster Friendly. And Buster Friendly was... You know, gives them all types of <coughs> advice on X, Y, and Z, and and keeps them. And a lot of it is just plain goofy stuff. It's like watching Oprah, Oprah sitcoms. It's like watching a, a American Idol. It's like it's like watching shows that just keep you idly awake, attached to the TV, entertained, and avoiding all important questions. So, in a very real sense. If they can't get you with Buster Friendly, they get you with the mind-altering stuff. Now, let's look at our, our current situation. We're opposed as a society to drugs such as crack cocaine, heroin, marijuana, things like that. But the drive in the populace to have those drugs is enormous. And it's not just among the poor people. It's among the, the Hollywood elite that that do these things. Well, yeah, but they're just as dangerous. I mean, Ritalin, for instance, is completely banned in Europe for people under the age of 21 because it is a mind-altering drug. I mean, it's not... If The U.S. Army will not take you if you've taken Ritalin within the last seven years. You cannot enlist in the Army. I mean... Can they check it to that kind of level? Can you just well, well, I mean, the thing is, to have it, theoretically, you had to have a prescription. And so they can check your medical record because when you join the army, you have to undergo a whole medical exam. <coughs> so they They'll get your. Because my cousin's in right now, and he's on. Well, I mean, their their stated policy is that they won't let you in, but a lot of people get into the army not completely filling out truthful medical examinations either. But I mean, Ritalin is a is I would argue as dangerous as crack cocaine. There are a lot of studies that are showing that. All of the major school shootings that occurred across the United States, all of those kids were on Ritalin. Either were or had recently stopped taking Ritalin. You know, you have to worry about cause and effect. You don't know if it was because of the Ritalin or because, or they were on Ritalin because they were already sort of well, yeah. strange. So there's a, um, you know, the, the cause and effect is 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 not clear in, in situations like that. But we do nonetheless see that. There are enormous numbers of kids on Ridland, enormous numbers of people on these mind-altering drugs, and the government doesn't seem to be in the slightest bit concerned about the the psychi- you know psychiatric medication of the population. Well, Go they're ahead. actually starting at younger and younger ages too. Like doctors mm-hmm. are putting kids on these drugs that even if they show like the slightest signs, they kind of like will think that they want to stop it from happening. Really, in the long run, it just makes it all worse because I know. My little cousin, he's like three, and he's on it already. And like, he'll just sit there and not move. And like, he used to be so like crazy and wild, and like now he can't. His appetite changes too, and so like it's just sad to see like little kids at that young age being controlled already. Yeah, it's a society that has adapted to accept that. Yeah, it is sad when you see the kids that are sort of bouncing off the wall suddenly being medicated you never know how they would grow out of it or yeah because yeah. that's my cousin too everyone thought he had ADD 
but then like now he's eight and he's fine. I mean, it was yeah. something he was just he was a wild. I mean, everyone is like hyperactive when they're like Kids four. Kids have imagination. Yeah. The doctors are trying to take that away from him. Yeah, I mean, That's what it seems like they're too fast to diagnose sometimes. Yeah, well, mind you that in 1968, this was unheard of. This type of stuff, this subtle medication to alter moods to control people the way they think. Just, I mean, you had situations where people were really psychotic and they were trying things to try to... I mean, they were people that were just playing completely bonkers and they were a danger to themselves. <coughs> but those are extremely rare and you find those in mental hospitals and so on like that. But now it's not that. And now it's just people, just normal people that are being medicated. And we're getting to the point where this, is going, where this has become just simply accepted and standardized. Now what happens when you're dealing with an enormously large population size, people who can do that, and you add 30 years to it? You have a whole bunch of adults and then a much larger population of kids underneath those adults. And then with adults, a large population, say 30% of the population of adults altering their moods, fine-tuning them, and maybe the population of the kids will go up to 60-70% of those who are slightly mind-altered by adding little prescription drugs here and there. In 1968, when New Androids Dream of Electric <coughs> Sheep was pu first published with Philip K. Dick, the only thing people were thinking about then was LSD and marijuana. Well, the thing is that uh, it's not a statistic that they ever take or do, but people who smoked pot back in the late 60s and 70s, there is a large gr number of businessmen today, like fully grown adult 40, 50-year-old men who smoke marijuana. Yeah, and it's a very large, it's a very large problem. This apparently is something that's going to get worse and going to get more. And the reality is we are entering a situation where the there's going to be increased obviousness of complicity between the government and the populace as the, as the populace increasingly uses these psychiatric adjusting medicines <coughs> the government will become but more accustomed to the idea that this is the norm there's also like a re there's also like a reflex against it like i like i know after hearing a lot of stories about you know people whose children were you know, just hyperactive at four and started taking Adderall and then they're eight and they're fine. Uh, you know, like, if I have kids, I wouldn't give them Adderall no matter what the diet, like, you know, because obviously the, you gotta, you gotta say like back when Adderall first came out, not that many people took it. All was, and not that many people were diagnosed with ADD. And it doesn't require Adderall to be diagnosed with ADD. Not that many people got diagnosed with ADD, and then more and more people <coughs> keep getting diagnosed, and it seems like the definition of ADD keeps expanding into this nebulous thing that I covers know, almost anything. So, like, if I ever had kids, I mean, they'd have to be, like, you know, really messed up before I would even consider giving them Adderall. Mm -hmm. I mean, it it's just... It, it, it does expand on some level. But then on another level, people who see it happening mm -hmm. realize that it's not a good thing. I mean, people on the outside looking at obviously people who are on the inside taking Adderall are, are like, wow, this is great. Or, or at least, you know, think it's okay and doing what it's supposed to. But then people who aren't are kind of like, 
you know, maybe it's not such a great idea. Mm-hmm. Well, like you say that there's going to be like increased complicity between the government and the drug dealers, and you can't say that for certain because like, if there comes along medical evidence that it's that shows that it's bad, then the government, like the people on the outside, who still have the majority of the population, like the government won't be allowed to just let this will flow unresolved. You trust the government? I trust the government to look out for their best interests. To look out for their best Well, look at it this way. This is something that we raised when we were talking about Brave New World and a very similar issue with regard to mm-hmm. population control. And I'm talking I'm ta- not talking about birth control. I'm talking about the control of the, of the psychology of the population. Um, but this is a true story. They ran a water test in the Thames River going through London. And remember what they discovered? This is the significant presence of Prozac. That means there were enough people in London, I'm I'm sorry, not in England, taking Prozac that when they urinated, it went into the sewers and then it flushed into the river. And it was detectable at very significant quantities in the river, just in the river when it got to London. I mean, that was a lot of Prozac. That means it's basically just uh, ubiquitous, that stuff. It was just all over the place. So, uh, you know, Jason, it may be true that you're going to, you know, go against the trend. But when you drink a glass of water in, in London, remember, you're drinking, some, you're, you're drinking Prozac. <laughs> There's a lot of that stuff out there. Go ahead. They've got water treatment all over the place, so how does it get into the they don't flush sewage? Uh, the water treatment doesn't take out chemicals of all types. Uh, for example, it doesn't take out fluoride. The fluoride stays in there. Like when you filter water with a filter, if you take a Brita filter or if you take a uh, water pick filter and you filter it out, you still get the fluoride in the water. So a lot of things stay in there. Well, apparently Prozac doesn't go away either. Well, I mean, and, and you also have to ask in what form the Prozac is. I mean, they obviously clear the water of like bacteria before they put it in the river, and they probably run it through activated charcoal. But I don't know in what form Prozac comes back out because there's the drug form of Prozac, obviously that re- reacts with your body. But I'm sure that there's like once it gets mixed with your blood and you know different things, it probably so gets metabolized. They can probably tell yes, this was Prozac, but it might not actually be functional Prozac. Okay, yeah. Well, it's true. It's true. Let's go over to page thirty. And now they're talking. This is in chapter three, and they're talking about the Nexus Six Android types. It's only a matter of time before we have uh, Nexus Sixes in our own <laughs> reality. I mean, we already have computers that can beat the best chess games, chess masters, it's, and it's only a matter of time. You know, I walk around with this flash memory thing for putting my data sets and all types of stuff on up to one gigabyte. That's relatively small these days, and it goes up to, what, four gigabytes, these little flash memories that they think... Well, the same size in 25 years will be probably, you know, a terabyte. It'll be a huge amount of space, that the things that... And there's no moving parts in any of this. And once you get a sufficiently large size memory that doesn't spin around, no hard drive, but it's all self-contained, then you're talking about the real possibility of artificial intelligence being uh, something that's not in the future, but in the present. It can actually... What's that? 
Well, the programming is going to be um, something that is going to be inevitable because there are going to be scientists that want to do it. Even right now, we could, we've got the capability to produce AI, but the programming behind it is still new to people. Give it 25 years. Give it 25 years, you'll be... And the stuff about the neural... Well, I always heard the biggest problem was the neural network. I mean, you simply can't make a computer right now that can keep track with the number of calculations that a human has to make in terms of mental functioning. And they just they just started doing something where I heard that they were cloning neurons, which is like the first big step, because if you can get a group of neurons together that are extraneous from a human brain... Now, in these Nexus 6s, you have to remember that currently we're using chips out of Silicon Valley type stuff. Right. In 25 years, these, these, yeah, these androids have organic brains. And so... Uh, so it's very likely that they're going to be designing brains in the future that will literally... Yeah. We have biological machines that we call bodies, and these brains are biological compu- computational and devices. Uh, but then the other thing was is always that the whole like articulation of the human body is such a... I mean, we're bipedal, and our brains have like your inner ear, and it's this whole adapted system of maintaining balance. Mm-hmm. What does the slowly have that big robot that can actually do like and walk normally well, yeah, but I mean, that's the big, like, most of its mental processing is tied up with maintaining its balance and making it walk. And it doesn't walk fluidly, I didn't think. Yeah, they've got it to the point where now they can get it pretty much fluid. Oh. Not exactly, not quite to a human level, but a good way then. You have to understand that this is experimentation in the very most basic and elementary sense. You Once you go 25, 30 years out, this level of understanding is going to accumulate. You're going to have the possibility of real artificial intelligence. The real question is, in 30 years, are you going to have artificial intelligence that will be small enough to fit in a skull as compared to, you know, the size of a classroom building or something like that? Anyway, let's look at page 30. And here we have Rick pondering about the, ac- the, about the androids. He had wondered, as had most people at one time or another, precisely why an android bounced helplessly about when confronted by an empathy measuring test. Empathy, evidently, existed only when the human community, whereas only within the human community, whereas (coughs) intelligence to some degree could be found throughout every phylum and order, including the arachnid, arachnida. For one thing, the emphatic faculty probably required an unimpaired group instinct. A solitary organism such as a spider would have no use for it. In fact, it would tend to abort a spider's ability to survive. It would make him conscious of the desire to live on the part of his prey. Hence, all predators, even highly developed mammals such as cats, would starve. Empathy, he once decided, must be limited to herbivores, or anyhow, omnivores who could depart from a meat diet, because ultimately the emphatic, the empathic gift blurred the boundaries between hunter and victim, between the successful and the defeated. As in the fusion with Mercer, everyone ascended together, or when the cycle had come to an end, fell together into the trough of the tomb world. Now remember, Mercer is that fantasy land thing that the people in the novel experience when they grip onto these handles and there's something that's like a um, 
Oh, what are those uh, treadmill? Something that's like a treadmill. You you stand on it and grab on the handles and <coughs> transport it into this fantasy world where you see this person, Gold Mercer, who guides you through the ascendance of life. All right. Oddly, it resembled a sort of biological insurance, but the double but double edged. As long as some creature experienced joy, then the condition for all other creatures included a fragment of joy. However, if any living being suffered, then for all the rest, the shadow would not be entirely cast off. A herd animal, such as a man, would, would acquire a higher survival factor through this. An owl or a cobra would be destroyed. Evidently, the humanoid robot constituted a solitary predator. Hmm. Let me read that, because I interrupted it. Let me read that last paragraph one more time. Empathy, he once had decided, must be limited to herbivores or any omnivores who could depart from a meat diet, because ultimately the empathic gift blurred the boundaries between hunter and victim, between the successful and the defeated. As in the fusion with Mercer, everyone ascended together, or, when the cycle had come to an end, fell together into the trough of the tomb world. Oddly, it resembled a sort of biological insurance, but double-edged. As long as some creature experienced joy, then the condition for all other creatures included a fragment of joy. However, if any living being suffered, then for all the rest the shadow could not be entirely cast off. A herd animal, such as a man, would acquire a higher survival factor through this. An owl or a cobra would be destroyed. Evidently, the humanoid robot constituted a solitary predator. <coughs> well, what do you think? Before I mention anything, what do you think? Empathy. Kind of goes against what Orson Scott called such an end of saying. Go ahead, say it more. Because in that Ender were like Ender was very empathic. Like he could get into the minds of his opponents. He like loved them and then he destroyed them. Yeah, it's very much like that. Or since Carhart did did have a lot to say with that. Yeah. Except he's saying that like a predator somebody comes to destroy you, you can't be empathic because mm-hmm. otherwise they'll like be conscious of your need for survival. Mm-hmm. Well, that was the same. I mean, that was the same thing. I mean, that's almost the same thing that Orson Scott saying. saying that in the end you empathize with them and then you had to kill them which made it so much worse ah now you're bringing up he he did say that like that would destroy any project (coughs) how did Rachel manage to or or try to stop the bounty hunters remember Rachel the android yeah how did she try to do that she slept with them what's that once again sleeping with him by sleeping with him developing an empathy and she tried to do it with the other bounty hunters as well the idea of sleeping with the bounty hunters creating some type of a bond an empathy bond with them and what was the purpose why was she doing that to try and make sure that um, to ensure her survival well go ahead what's that to to ensure that they couldn't honestly go after any of the other animals without seeing her they couldn't do it they couldn't attack the other androids without seeing her oh without seeing her this empathy bond. And, and Rachel, what were you saying? It was, she did it to try and ensure Android survival in her own. Because she felt that if they if bounty hunters empathized with her, that they wouldn't want to kill her. How can... What? How did the 
How did the bounty hunters and the other humans think of androids? Lesser. As what? Lesser beings. How did they call them? Did they call them he, she's, she's? They called them its. And what were you saying, Adam? They view them as like a lesser, a subservient race. Yeah, actually, as not even a race, but just as a non, as a non-human, non-thinking. And the androids had a difficult time breaking through getting that empathy to start. You know, this issue of empathy is is hugely important. I remember that there was a lady at the natural health food store that I sometimes go to at the counter. And there was this oh cute little girl with behind the checkout counter that was running the cash register that had, you know, jeans jeans that had holes in them and and uh, you know a, a psychedelic t-shirt on and she started talking about cruelty to animals while she was punching in um, prices in the checkout for, for the customer she was running the cashier the, the, the uh, cash register and the lady who was getting supplies she just openly started laughing at her just, just it was open recognition that this cashier was nuts just, uh, cruelty to animals all this animal type of st- <coughs> how stupid could it be but it struck me at the time that there was a lack of empathy that this lady literally didn't conceive of animals as being able to have feelings this idea of that we that we you say in our own sort of theological understanding of life is that they don't have souls and if they don't have souls, then they're its. They don't have something that's real. Now, when did Paul and Linda McCartney become vegetarians? <laughs> you don't know that one? Okay. Well, they had pets, and one of their pets were lambs. They had lambs for pets, <laughs> plus a bunch of other animals. And then one day they were sitting around dinner and having a lamb dinner. And they looked outside and they saw their lamb. And they looked on their plate and they were looking at the lamb they were eating. And they looked back outside and saw their lamb. Now, many people around here have dogs and cats for pets. And the idea of you eating a dog and a cat is horrific. How could you eat a dog or a cat when you have it as a pet? I'm sorry, Jason. Oh, in Korea they do eat dogs for the Philippines yeah well the thing is you normally don't eat things that you have as a pet that you share love with that you have some type of affection to it but the reality is there's no difference between a dog <coughs> and a lamb but as long as you don't have it as a pet there's no empathy towards it but by that nature there's no difference in any living thing that has <coughs> on it so even a human could easily be seen as the same as a dog or lamb once you're dead you're dead you just like muscle Hence cannibalism. Yeah. That kind of like well, I am a vegetarian, and I can't tell you how many times when I see somebody put a hamburger into their mouth that I say in my own mind, cannibals. I live among cannibals. <laughs> well, I mean, the one thing, my wife and I, our whole family is vegetarian. We were driving up Route 5 in California between L.A. and San Francisco. And along Route 5, this is when I was a professor back at UCLA, and I was visiting a friend who was a professor at San Francisco State University. 
And along Route 5, they have a slaughterhouse. A huge slaughterhouse. I mean, it is huge. And the stench from the place and the psychological vibrations or psychic vibrations that come from the place, it's like a, it's like a concentration type camp. It's just awful. And we just drove there, and my wife, when we started to go there, she's a very sensitive person, when we, we started to get near her, she said, something's not right with this place. And then the smell started to come in, and she started to look out, and she saw this, the horror of all these animals and their states of, it was just an awful place, were, uh, was horrific. Anyway, she started to vomit inside the, inside the car, you know, sort of gag inside the car, not actually vomit, but gag inside the car. I just drove as fast as I could, past the place. It took quite a while because it was a very large slaughterhouse. On the other hand, I have seen many other people drive by that slaughterhouse and look at it com- with complete indifference. <coughs> with, uh, without even any slight feeling that there was any aso- okay, feelings associated with those animals. That's because we need it. Uh, What's that? Humans uh, as the dominant species on the planet. But now that's a good point, Otto. We are the dominant species of the planet. Thus... Like we see the resources, everything else for us to use here, and we need this kind of. Well, let me stop you there. It's not only that you're right. Let me repeat what you said: that we see the resources as what we need to use. But add the other part to that sentence: that everything on the planet is identifiable as one of our resources. Okay, that's true. But by that measure, we need like a, a distance, a separation from. Everything like oh, like the what you hear about the chopping down the rainforests. How many people actually like people say, "Ah, oh, that's bad." How many people actually feel that so they can get up and like do something like even try to do something about it? Less than one in a hundred, one in a thousand, maybe. Yeah, like, in yeah. The entire population of the U.S. I mean, if you in, in America, that's a good good point. If humans don't have empathy towards anything they don't personally experience, then why should they have empathy for a rainforest or any other living thing? Oh. Now, this that's exactly good, and so th- that that would indicate from your from what you're saying, the prediction then is that the rainforest's future is to be a golf course. Um, at the rate we're going, yeah, yeah, and that is what's going to happen. The Amazon is going to be a golf course. Go ahead. Well, I just. Like, back to that lady at the health food store. Yeah. I, I think that... the po- I understand how you felt about it. But I think the point wasn't empathy. Because I'm going to guess the woman wasn't laughing at the fact that the, other, that the cashier was talking about animal rights. I'm going to guess that the woman was laughing at animal rights groups. I mean... Oh, I, I feel It's that hard to distinguish between those two, but go ahead. Well, I feel that a lot of people um, consider PETA to be a joke. A lot of people do. And that a lot of people consider... I mean... Consider what to be a joke? PETA. PETA. People for the ethical treatment of animals. Okay, people for the ethical treatment of animals. I mean, a lot of people consider that organization to be a joke. (coughs) Now, at the same time... I mean, I consider PETA to be a joke. At the same time, it would horrify me to go out and kill a dog. Okay? That would just... That would be an atrocity. But... PETA takes it to a whole other level, and so a lot of people get a kick out of PETA, and it's not, it's not, uh, it's not an insult against animal rights. It's not that they don't believe that animals have souls. It's that, it's that to some extent, they accept the fact that we're going to eat animals, and so it's laughable to them that PETA takes, you know, what they think is a cause for household pets out to, you know, farmyard animals. Okay. Why don't we look at it 
in the following way, which is which is good. We're talking now about animals, but let's say this is a generalizable aspect of human nature, and I think that's what Philip K. Dick is really talking about, a generalizable aspect, which is that humans have the ability to psychologically detach other life forms from any empathic understanding, meaning they can cut them off. They can say, we don't have any empathy for that particular cow or sheep or whatever. But if we have that as a generalizable trait, then we can do that with other life forms that happen to be our life forms, humans. What Philip K. Dick is really talking about is how the empathy can be cut off so that we can do things like have slavery. The entire Roman Empire was built on slavery. We in the United States had a huge history with slavery. It wasn't that we thought of those people as humans, but we thought of them as non-people. Now, if you think about it, when... Go ahead, Jason, you were going to say Well, I mean, war works the same way. I mean, the entire institution of war, back exactly. as far as you can go, you can't empathize with the enemy, which is why a lot of people thought that um, world... Well, I mean, a lot of wars were really difficult for the men on the front lines because I know in the Civil War and in World War II, they'd have, like, pauses. When people would, you know... Or at least during Civil War, they'd have pauses where the troops would run across to the other side and they'd trade, you know, whatever they had... Uh, you know, for whatever the other side had. Not like weaponry, but like, you know, magazines and food and you know, cigarettes and whatever they had. And the same thing happened to some greater or lesser extent in World War Two. And so, I mean, war is... I mean, it's, it's the understanding of the enemy and then, you know, potentially empathizing with them, but then all of a sudden you got to run back to your side and put up this psychological barrier down the middle so that you can shoot the other person. That was also hard when in Civil War, especially when they'd have family on the other side as well. And yeah, kind of yeah. actually that happened, yeah, during the Civil War that happened. Yeah, the Civil War. Yeah. The Civil War, but Civil War especially. Well, let's, let's look at it from the perspective of the current debates that are going on right now in the U.S. Congress mm-hmm. on immigration. It's pretty crazy stuff. Middle schoolers are protesting. Middle schools are protesting? In California, they have high schools and middle schools protesting. Well, let's look at today's front page. This is <coughs> Tuesday, April 4th, 2006. Front page in the New York Times. An immigration debate framed by family ties. What I think we're going to see is that, immig- that the issue that uh, Philip K. Dick is raising is is a very broad issue, not related to animal rights or androids or slaves or anything, but related to all of them together, including our immigrants. Listen, during the heated immigration debate on Capitol Hill, some Republicans have portrayed immigrants as invaders, criminals, and burdens to society. But for Senator Pete V. Domenici, Republican of of New Mexico, the image that comes to mind is that of his mother and the day the authorities took her away. It was 1943, World War II was raging, and federal agents were sweeping through Albuquerque hunting for Italian sympathizers. They found Mr. Domenici's mother, Ada V. Domenici, a curly-haired mother of four and a local PTA president, who also happened to be an illegal immigrant from Italy. Mr. Domenici, who said he was he was nine or ten years old then, wept when his mother vanished with the agents in their big black car. 
Now 73, Mr. Domenici surprised many of his colleagues when he stood up on the Senate floor last week and shared the story, which he has kept mostly to himself for much of his life. But his powerful account reflects a broader reality that has gone almost unnoticed as Republicans have feuded over whether to legalize the nation's illegal immigrants. Among the most passionate Republican voices in this debate are lawmakers with strong immigrant ties who have woven the strands of family history into an outlook that has helped shape their legislative positions. The close connection has convinced some lawmakers of the importance of providing citizenship to illegal immigrants, while others say it should be granted more sparingly. Senator Arlen Specter, Republican of Pennsylvania and chairman of the Judiciary Committee, which voted last week to legalize millions of illegal immigrants, that was just a Judiciary Committee, not the whole Senate, said his parents came to the United States from Russia in the early 1900s. Senator John Kyle, Republican of Arizona, who reports... A more, who supports a more temporary worker program, said he grew up listening to the stories of his grandparents who arrived from the Netherlands sometime before 1910. And Senator Mel Martinez, Republican of Florida, fled Cuba for Florida in 1962 when he was 15 and lived in orphanages and with foster families until he was reunited with his family four years later. These men carry the memories of relatives who spoke with the sonorous accents of their homelands, fading black and white photographs of the newcomers to the United States and the names of villages in faraway places. When like we conflict of interest. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, in any in any major corporation or anywhere else, that would be considered a conflict of interest. Having a background that having having a background and then being forced to decide. A limited number of people who have a background of illegal immigrants coming into the United States and starting their families being decided to vote on an issue for millions of people would be a conflict of interest. Well, actually, in political reality, it's you can't say that because the representatives are supposed to be representative of the population, and the population in the United States is basically built of people connected to immigrants. So the the article then goes on later to say that in the generations of the 40s and uh, in the 1940s and 50s and 60s you had huge numbers of legislators who had immigrant connections it's actually relatively fewer now and it's expected in the future to actually start to gain and become more as more people who have been immigrants work their way up and become political leaders but it's a fact of life for example is it a conflict of interest for legislators to um, be supporting of you know better labeling on food if in fact they themselves have lots of members of their family who are vegetarians and want good labeling on food for example there's um, there's a process going through the Congress now to take away all types of labeling on food so that you can't find out what's actually in it they want to be able to put the organic label on almost anything. And, uh, now, is it a conflict of interest for people who have a long history with wanting organic food to be really organic and for the labeling to be there so they can see what's in there? Is that a conflict of interest? Jason, I think what you really have to look at with regard to the conflict of interest is, is there a financial conflict of interest? Conflict of interest really cannot be based on experience. 
It has to be based on finances. Otherwise, every aspect of everything you do in life is a conflict of interest. Well, well I mean, just I mean, for instance, that when when you when you have a when you have a DA doing a court case, if that DA becomes too deeply involved with any member of the of the case, they're taken off the case and they put another DA in. In this case, you have a bunch of men who are and women who are sitting around deciding on immigration and they all have a vested interest in legalizing it. Every one of them who has a background yeah, but of when we use the word con- I understand what you're saying, but when we use the word conflict of interest today, <coughs> we really can't immediate, we can't eliminate the issue of family backgrounds as conflict of interest with regard to passing legislation and so on. There is a um, in a situation of a, of a of a court case, even then it's questionable. The real issue with conflict of interest comes with financial stuff. For example, I wasn't going to raise this, but let me just go to an editorial in today's New York Times. Uh, This is the third editorial in today's New York Times. It's about uh, Gerhard Schroeder, the the, um, former chancellor of Germany. A court in Hamburg confirmed a gag order yesterday that reigns in a German politician's criticism of the former chancellor, uh, Gerhard Schroeder, for taking a lucrative job as head of a Russian-led gas pipeline project. Here is what the politician, Guido Westerweller, leader of the Free Democrats, is no longer permitted to say. Mr. Schroeder cut a deal on the project with the Russian gas giant Gazprom while he was chancellor, and then went to work for Gazprom immediately on leading office. Now it emerges that Mr. Schroeder's government guaranteed financing of more than a billion dollars for the pipeline. Mr. Schroeder insists that he knew nothing about it. (laughs) It is appalling, it goes on. Uh, That's a conflict of interest. When you work out a special financial deal for a company while you're chancellor of Germany, or president of the United States, or whatever, and then immediately go off and work for that company. Well, um, but I mean, there's, so you see there's... But they're working out a special deal for illegal immigrants because they're illegal immigrants and then when they get out, they've just, you know, cemented the status of illegal immigrants in the United States. Well, what do, they, what do other people think about that? I think that if you, like, go out legalization, your citizenship to everybody who has a, like, even minor claim on it, and maybe not minor claim, if you just throw it out, then you, like... Devalue it. Well, it's it's worse than it's worse than that. If you only allowed people who had no ties to immigration to vote on it, you wouldn't have you know a, almost everybody in Congress has some ties to somebody who is immigrant. So I'm in favor of immigration. I'm saying people with backgrounds in illegal immigration. Don't don't get me wrong here. Almost everyone in the United States immigrated at some point. Half of my family immigrated, but it was legal immigration through Ellis Island. I'm saying you can't let people in the Senate well, and yeah. House act as firebrands who have illegal immigrant parents because then you do have a conflict of interest. Well, now, Jason, you're raising rules that are really quite specious because everybody in the United States came in here illegally. Eventually, no one no one asked the Indians, the Native Americans. If we were breaking any of their laws to come in and smash in and take, but we can't. We captured this place. So we captured it fair and square. So, well, so they didn't have a nation back when set up. So it wasn't in the, like the purely political sense. In they the had government. they had clear territories, and you know the issue of whether they had actual nations is a, is 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 a, 
something that you have to argue with anthropologists who study these things. They used to say in Africa that when the Europeans divided it up, that there was no nations, just tribes running around. As if, and then, of course, that was a myth. There were clear African nations. Some of them were huge. The, they had clear nations. They had ambassadors. They had large capitals. They had in the, in the, in the kingdom of Buganda, which is now part of Uganda, they had a thatched hut the size of a castle with multiple rooms and everything for the king of Buganda. And they had a road down the center that could easily accompany, you know, four or five lanes of a highway. Yet they had no highways. They had no cars. They had ambassadors from all over the place. On the West Africa, they had metalworking skills that clearly surpassed anything that was available in Europe at the time. With the, they had these famous statues, the bronze statues, which used a metalworking skill that was just unheard of in Europe. Yet when the Europeans conquered the place, the first thing they did was to establish the myth that there was no organization to the, to the people that were there beforehand. And that even when the, even when the, the, the bronze statues and other evidences in, indicated there were some technological capabilities within Africa for a long long time they said this must have come from Portugal or this must have come from some other place eradicating <coughs> all of that stuff so when we say that there was no under, there was no organization no human organization of any significant nature in the Americas before the before the you know the Europeans came breathe real deep when you hear that one because we just simply don't know no go ahead I mean I I didn't assert that. I just when and the thing when we came here, you know, it was a small group of pilgrims fleeing persecution who came here and coexisted with the Indians. And then eventually more and more people came. Half of the Indians died because of diseases that those people had no control over. They could, they had no way of knowing that the Indians would come to those diseases. And then the rest of them, they got into conflicts with the Indians and won. Like, it, it was like conquest. And now... It was bloody conquest. It was bloody con I agree. But, well, leaving that aside... No, no, the, the, the point that you're raising is is, is very important. The, the point is that all of the laws that we have, all of the rules that we have of society, are a, con are a consequence, not of delicate agreement among all relevant parties that this is the way things are going to be and these are the rules were established. They're the consequence of armed combat and that the winner then sets up a set of the rules. Well, if they're not careful, that's what they're going to have down on the Mexican border because they're all out there with signs yelling Reconquista and I'm just, I'm telling you what, mm -hmm. they just, they want their piece of Texas back and <laughs> oh, I'm no. not sure how that's going to go down. <laughs> Bush is not careful, Texas will be part of Mexico. So we'll let's, New Mexico. Let's, so let's keep like going. Cal it's it's 9.30 now. Yeah. It's 9.30 now. Cool. We're raising some issues. And we're not going to resolve these issues. But my <laughs> whole point here is not to resolve. My whole point here is to generate the debate so that you realize the relevancy of the things that are being talked about. By the way, the last three classes that we're going to be having here, you're going to be giving presentations. So that'll be the last three classes. Of the, so get used to the idea of raising provocative points that you're going to be trying to argue and getting it... And remember, there's one thing I've been hammering on all of your papers. 
you've got to look for the unusual aspect that people are not thinking about that you raise from these books. So you've got to be able to do it not just in written, but in also verbally. So we're going to do that later. I'll, I'll explain more about that later. Let's go to page 44. And what chapter is this? This is in chapter 4. Page 44. <coughs> Now, here, uh, Rick is talking with Rachel Rosen. Okay. Indicating his department briefcase, Rick said, I'm ready to start. Senior Rosen's, the senior Rosen's nervousness, he's about ready to uh, uh, start testing the, uh, the see if they can detect the Nexus Sixes with his new psychological test. I'm ready to start. The senior Rosen's nervousness buoyed up his own confidence. They're afraid of me, he realized. With a start, Rachel Rosen included, I can probably force them to abandon manufacture of their Nexus 6 types. What I do during the next hour will affect the structure of their operation. It could conceivably determine the future of the Rosen Association here in the United States, in Russia, and on Mars. The two members of the Rosen family include... Uh, I'm sorry. The two members of the Rosen family studied him apprehensively and he felt the hollowness of their manner. By coming here, he had brought the void to them and ushered in emptiness and the hush of economic death. They control inordinate power, he thought. His enterprise is considered one of the system's industrial pivots, the manufacture of androids. In fact, has become so linked to the colonization effort that if one dropped into ruin, so would the other in time, meaning if the manufacture of robots androids collapsed and the colonization would collapse. The Rosen Association naturally understood this perfectly. Eldon Rosen had obviously been conscious of it since Harry Bryant's call and Harry Bryant was of course Rick Rosen's boss back at the police station. Alright. What do we see here? What's relevant that we can draw here from a political point of view? It's kind of saying if you take out like big member and like the hierarchy person that everything else like will fall apart like the society will just collapse okay okay what and, and let's let's expand that a little bit more what else about that the interconnectedness what about that it's kind of like anytime we go to like like the war in Iraq or whatever like we're trying mm -hmm. to take out the head person mm -hmm. in order to be able to control the rest of the like country that's now, are we are we really talking about just the head people? Is that what Philip K. Dick is talking about? You take out the head person. What about this interconnectedness? Colonists are dependent upon androids, and the androids to be produced are dependent upon colonization. So they're kind of mutually linked. What is it? Just androids he's talking about now? I mean, it's what is the what is the sort of a more broad um, fundamental aspect of our existence? Well, it's pretty much the survival of humanity. I mean. People are having to leave Earth because they're getting fried by radiation and they're mutating under 
intense radiation. So they're leaving Earth and going to Mars, and the problem is that they can't go to Mars unless they have some androids there who can... Let's call it what it is, slave labor. Okay. Uh, they well, have slave labor. Go ahead. Okay, without their, without their androids there, they can't... Um, they can't cultivate where they're going. And so they're having to have androids, and if the androids aren't created, then it's the end of the human race because they can't... Okay, I've got to push a little bit farther. What is he talking about that's sort of general in human nature or general in, in our existence as a contemporary society? Survival instinct. Yeah, survival instinct, but what else? What about the Vietnam War? What was the big argument about the Vietnam War? Why did we have to fight it, if we had to fight it? Containment for communism. Well, what's the issue with communism? To defeat communism, what about all that? Humans tend to see things as linked. I'm sorry, I know. We tend to see things as linked. Like, this thing will... Like, we tend to see that we... A lot of people see the repercussions that could possibly happen if something... Okay, what kind of repercussions? Well, why did we have to fight... Yeah, if we had to fight it, the, the Iraqi war. It's like the war on terror. To we defend our interests. Yeah, if we didn't fight in the war, I mean... But now wait a second, listen. Jason, I mean, I'm sorry, Jason and, and, and Hussein. Um, fighting for our interests, fighting the war on terror, it's now undocumented. I mean, I mean it's, now, it's, it's now totally documented. It's not, it's not, it's not a disputable fact. There were no weapons of mass destruction, and the intelligence information was, if not outright fabricated, it was contrived. And it was just, it, it was that there was a design that Bush wanted to have the, the war to begin with. Why do we not invade other countries? The oil. They don't have the oil. The interconnectedness between if we don't have the oil, then we don't have the rest of the civilization. What Philip K. Dick, I think, is raising, and I'm pushing a little bit faster now because it's 9.37 and I want to cover a few more points, is that we have a society that rationalizes almost any action we do because if we stop any one action, it has a consequence to our other actions, and we want the other things to go on. So we want colonization in Philip K. Dick's perspective. Why? Well, the humans blew up the planet in the first place, they had a nuclear war. They're responsible for it, but they then had to leave and they had to go somewhere else, so they must have colonization. Colonization requires slave labor, so they need the androids. In order to have the androids and to have them as slave labor, you've got to cut the empathy off with the androids. You can't feel them as living beings. You have to pretend they're its rather than anything else. You have to stop that empathy, which is what Rachel was trying to reconnect with, with Rick later on. The idea being, in order for the economic process to go in a smooth way, you've got to get people to think in a certain way. You can't let them disconnect the chain of events because everything is connected to everything else. That's why the government, this goes all the way back to the very first passage, that's why the government would not want everyone to think these things through. That's exactly what you're doing here in the classroom. You're thinking these things through. Now look, we're, de we're, we're debating these issues. And we're arguing about them. All of these arguments are very fine and good. The question is, after you leave here, do you find other people arguing about these same things? You don't, do you? 
you find other so it's really just a few people here and those people listening to the podcast that are dealing with these things what Philip K. Dick is really saying is that you're an anomaly you're actually questioning what the government requires in order in our contemporary society in order for continued progress as I would call it is for the thinking to stop didn't you see this in all of in so many of the other novels The Brave New mm-hmm. World by Aldous Huxley it's that stopping of the questioning the questioning of absolutely everything the reality was there was no weapons of mass destruction and it was very clear from the very beginning that there were no weapons of mass destruction remember I heard the edit the uh, two months before the invasion I heard on national public radio in the United States the editors of Jane's Intelligence and Jane's Defense those are the two major defense magazines and intelligence magazines on the planet earth regardless of nation they come out of Britain and they were both being interviewed in there, and they're on, on by uh, Terry Gross on National Public Radio and they're saying look whether we invade or not let's be absolutely clear about this there are no weapons of mass destruction they were all cleared out there was no real knowledge about weapons of mass destruction they had oil and we had to get that because if we didn't have the oil then the collapse of the rest of the infrastructure Iraq can be simply what do they call that? collateral damage <laughs> you lose a country so what? collateral damage we need the oil for the rest of the civilization because we're an oil based economy so you have to stop thinking of Iraq as a real thing you have to start thinking of it as something else harboring terrorism harboring weapons of mass destruction to justify your actions similarly whenever you have a disadvantaged population that you can exploit you have to think of them if you want to continue the exploitation as something different from what they are you can't have that bond of empathy and why it takes anti-war movements so long to actually start up and go is they're fighting that breakage of empathy this is the thing I want you to think about how hard was it for Rachel to get the bounty hunters to think about them about the androids as possibly living creatures she had to sleep with them she had to make the bonds it was hard how long did it take for whites in America to think of Africans or black Americans African Americans as human beings it wasn't the first slave that was raped or the first slave that they that the that the white slave owners slept with that woke that up remember Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemming <laughs> they were Thomas Jefferson had a white wife but Sally Hemming was his sweetheart for a long 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 time had they had a bunch of kids it's an undisputed DNA tested fact at this point I believe it I think you know I think she was eventually sold a bad divorce <laughs> at the very end you know like 20 years later or something so I thought he freed all the slaves of this estate what's that? I thought he freed all the slaves of this estate I, I think Sally Hemming didn't, didn't come to a, a nice ending but anyway I'm not sure about that the uh, Jefferson or Washington? Jefferson there was Jefferson who sold all the slaves when he died yeah. he freed all the slaves when he died yeah the point is though when he had no longer had any economic interest in them when he's dying <laughs> he can let them go but keep them until the very end until he doesn't need them anymore so th- the, the point is it takes generations sometimes for the empathy to build this doesn't mean that we're bad or good what it simply says is you should recognize some aspect of human nature when empathy breaks it's really hard to reestablish it 
it's really hard to reestablish it. Whether it breaks towards immigrants coming in from Mexico, it can take generations, or from some other place, or whether it's empathy with the Germans and the Jews during the Holocaust, or the Germans and the Slavs. There were 20 million people that bit the dust in those days. Empathy broke. And so, that's a, it's a, just a fascinating issue. Let's just go to one more. We've only got two more minutes, but I want to make sure we get at least one more in. Let's go to page 136. Page 12. I'm, I'm sorry. Chapter 12, page 136. Chapter 12, page 136. Okay, now... Um, Rick is talking to Phil Resch, the other bounty hunter. This is necessary, remember. Uh, they're talking about the use of androids. Okay. And they said before, uh, they can use androids much better if Andy's do it. I can't anymore. Uh, I've had enough. She was a wonderful singer. They had just... And, and then he said, this is insane. They had just killed uh, Luba, who was the android, who was the beautiful opera singer. Her voice was apparently spectacular. This is necessary, remember? This is Phil Rush, the cold-hearted bounty hunter who had his empathy disconnected. <laughs> remember, they killed humans in order to get away, and if I hadn't gotten you out of the Mission Police Station, they would have killed you. That's what Garland wanted me for. That's why he had me come down to his office. Didn't Polakoff almost kill you? Didn't Luba Luft almost... We're acting defensively. They're here on our planet. They're murderous, illegal immigrants. I mean, Ill illegal aliens masquerading as... As police, Rick said. As bounty hunters. Okay, give me the Bonelli test. Maybe Garland lied. I think he did. False memories just aren't that good. What about my squirrel? Because Phil Rush said he had a squirrel, so he, had, he was saying he had, he had empathy for a squirrel, so he couldn't be a... 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 a, a uh, an android. Yes, your squirrel. I forgot about your squirrel. If I'm an Andy, Phil Rush said, and you kill me, you can have my squirrel. Here, I'll write it out, willing it to you. Andes can't will anything. They can't possess anything to will, uh, answered uh, Rick. Well, then just take it, Phil Rush said. Maybe so, Rick, squirrel, Rick said. The elevator had reached the first floor now, its doors opened. You stay with Luba. I'll get a patrol car here to take her to the Hall of Justice for her to get that bone marrow test. Remember, they had to have a bone marrow test to make sure she was an android. He saw the phone booth, entered it, dropped in a coin, and his fingers shaking dialed. Meanwhile, a group of people who had been waiting for the elevator gathered around Phil Resch and the body of Luba Luft. She was a really superb singer, he said to himself, as he hung up the receiver, his call completed. I don't get it. How can a talent like that be a liability to our society? But it wasn't the talent, he told himself. It was herself, as Phil Resch said, he thought. It's, uh, he's a menace in exactly the same way for the same reasons. He's a menace. He's talking about himself now. Uh, for exactly the same way for the same reasons. So I can't quit now. He saw, uh, emerging from the phone booth, he, phone booth, he pushed his way among the people, back to Resch and the prone figure of the android figure, uh, of the android girl. Someone had to put a coat over her. Not Resh's. Okay. Not Resh's, which is sort of another indication that there was no empathy there on Resh's part. What's going on here? We only have one minute to talk about this, but what do you actually see going on here? About doing the bat. 
And like the reasons for doing it, because he's debating. He's like, "Well, is it really necessary to kill her?" But I mean, no. He's like, "No, we we have to do it." It's kind of like labeling everyone into one group. Even like, like the whole thing when Muslims happen after nine eleven. It's like, are all Muslims terrorists? Well, I mean, that's impossible. But to justify, it, sometimes a lot of people thought that way. Like, I don't know. They, they must all be. Let's not forget that all androids on Earth had already murdered someone. I mean, okay, yeah, they were all murderers. I mean, I understand that, that we're supposed to sympathize with Rick Deckard, but personally, we're acting defensively here. We're acting defensively. They're here on our planet. They're murderous illegal aliens masquerading as, as police and bounty hunters. I mean, they did murder someone to get to planet Earth. Let's not forget that. They are murderers. Well, and so that's an interesting point. Is someone who's a slave uh, a murderer because they have to kill someone in order to escape? They did commit murder. <laughs> but they, they murdered they, someone. But they killed their slave owners. I mean, they killed their owner. What's that? Murder is murder, no matter how you justify it. So I mean, if I say I own you and you have to do whatever, and I can do anything I want, including kill you and get away with it, but if you kill me back, you're a murderer. I'm not murderer. saying murder in that case is bad. I'm just saying that you have to face that murder. Murder is wrong, no matter what. And you can escape without murder. <laughs> well, what if you can't? What if you can't escape without killing the person that no, says he owns you, you and that he can kill you with the drop of a hat? Okay. Kill him or not him, it's your choice. But in the end, face up to the fact that... You're a murderer. What I'm trying to get at here is what we're getting in this passage is conflict. They're trying to resolve, to go through the conflict. Whenever you debate issues like this, you force yourself through conflict. And this is what the rest of the population doesn't get. They're on drugs. The rest of the population is drugged out with everything from Ritalin to Adderall to everything else. They're being zombified by the television. They're watching TV commercials. They're watching American Idol. They're watching whatever they're watching, but they are not questioning, just like you're questioning this. This is what it causes to be alive, to question these, to question these things. The reality is, we could argue till you know where we can't argue anymore, but we could argue till all of tomorrow, whether it's you know okay to kill someone who's imprisoned you. If if you're kidnapped by somebody and you manage to kill your kidnapper, are you then a murderer? I'm mean, like, because like, what happens if you rob a bank and then you kill your jail a person who's tending your jail cell? You're still a murderer. But like, like there's a law if someone's on your property and you shoot them. That's not murder. You killed somebody, but... Self-defense. As long as as they're attacking you. The point is, these are rules which humans make. And rules we make sometimes for our own convenience. And sometimes the rules are absolutely ridiculous. And sometimes they seem more defensible. But they are nonetheless rules. These are self-contrived rules. And sometimes we organize our thought like the reality should be according to our rules. But it takes sometimes science fiction... In a class like this, it takes a Socrates sometimes to come up to you at the market to question every little thing that you're doing to force you to start questioning to get back to what it actually means to be. To be with a capital B. If you go down that train of thought, you realize people don't have as much power over you as you give. If everybody started thinking like that, then the government collapse goes, like, why should I do what they tell me? Like, what? What well, is it? Otto, you're raising the very excellent point. You're raising the final point, is, which is the why. That's what is so lacking in our society. That's why you're here paying the tuitions at Emory. That's why you're in this class. 
you're asking the why questions. But just understand, just because you're getting it doesn't mean that everybody else out there gets it. Most people don't think. They think they're thinking. But on the level that Philip K. Dick is talking about, on the level that Socrates was talking about, they're not thinking. Okay, look, great. I will see you on Thursday. <laughs>